the the uh, the Mark series, the only verse by verse Bible study starring Moxie the cat. <laughs> there she is. Hey, kitty. <laughs> All right. Well, here's what we're doing. Sorry for those on podcast. You don't get to see Moxie. You'll just have to go to YouTube or something. But um, but anyways, thank you guys for joining me. Um, I'm glad you're here with me as we're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse and we're studying it to understand it thoroughly and thoughtfully. And while we're doing that, we're pulling out all sorts of topical issues to consider as well as doing the verse by verse stuff. And today we have Jesus's last healing in this part 40 of our Mark series. And we're going to be in Mark 10, 46 through 52. So Jesus's last healing, not just in Mark, but this is Jesus's last healing in, in Matthew and Luke as well. So it has a lot of significance. And I think it's a commentary on the whole ministry of Jesus, theologically speaking. So we're going to get into that later on. Also, we're going to deal with uh, New Age and and faith healing. And when I say that, I, I believe in healing. I, I believe in the work of the Holy Spirit, even active today. I'm talking about these sort of uh, those who, you know, draw from scripture, but then they actually are also drawing from things like new age or other unbiblical ideas. And we're going to deal with their misinterpretations of scripture. So the, um, the thing is, I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's the thing. So this passage that we're going to deal with today is where Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And I think that is a hub of misinformation for people. They, they go to that text and they distort it and use it for their own worldview or their own beliefs, not in the context Jesus intended. And so we're going to be dealing with that today as well. Um, so yeah, how, how, how to undo the new age or hyper, hyper charismatic signs and wonders kind of interpretation of these passages, but without losing the baby with the bathwater. That's the idea. So we're going to then uh, deal with the theological implications of this final healing of Jesus. Uh, like a lot of the healings of Jesus we see in the Gospel of Mark, there's these deep theological implications. All right, so here we are, Mark 10, 46. Let's get started. It says, Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho, with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And so this guy gets introduced, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Now, just preview, Jesus is going to heal this man, and then the man's going to become a disciple or follower of Jesus Christ. But it's interesting that Mark, already in the beginning, he gives him a name, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. And his name's interesting for several reasons, okay? I'm, I'm not going to bore you with random trivia here. This is all interesting and important stuff dealing with the historicity of the content in the Gospels and dealing with just sort of unraveling and, and answering riddles and questions as we study the text of Scripture. So Mark only sometimes names people, but they are a, there are a lot of names in Mark. Mark uh, in, and the Gospels themselves have a lot more names than the second century uh, fake Gospels that, that we would call, you know, apocryphal works like the Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas. Like these weren't written by Peter, Thomas, or Judas. These are all forgeries. And they lack names. One of the reasons why they lack names and why Mark includes names like Bartimaeus is probably because Mark is just actually recording real history. And these are real people. And he records names because they're their real names. Now, some would argue against this, uh, but I don't think they'd have any good grounds for arguing against it. It's more about uh, assumptions that are being pushed onto the text of Scripture. Let me give you some reasons for that. Now, I've covered this in more detail in the first one of this entire Mark series. I talked about who wrote Mark, and I talked about the, the Gospel of Mark as having eyewitness testimony. But here's a little snippet from that earlier research. 
the the names that we read about, like Bartimaeus, this is a Palestinian name, Bartimaeus. In fact, it we'll come back to this. It means son of Timaeus. That's what the name means. Bar means son of, not in Greek, right? In Hebrew Aramaic. So these names do not seem invented. They don't seem created after the fact. And one of the reasons why we can think that they're not fabricated, random names attached to to these these characters of these stories, is because of the work of an Israeli historian named Tal Ilan. Now, she did a bunch of work. This is the kind of boring work scholars do that then really helps us a lot. We get a benefit a lot from their labors. And in this case, Tal Ilan, what she did was she cataloged the names of Jews from Palestine from like a 300-year period before Christ to after Christ. And so she's looking at names on tombstones, names in documents, and she's cataloging all these names. What they find is that the names of people in Palestine at that time, in the time of Christ, are different than the names of Jews in Egypt or in Rome or in other areas around the world. That's interesting because what do we have in the Gospels? We have first century records of names of people who supposedly lived in Palestine. And if their names are different in Rome and Egypt, that means if you were writing from Rome, as Mark, most people think, was writing from Rome, and you were making up names, you would you would make up names that fit the names you knew from those around you. And so what do the names do? Well, they fit, actually, the names of the people from Palestine. That There's this incredible correspondence across the four Gospels, across the book of Acts. There's this great correspondence between the real names and the frequency of names. How often is someone named Peter? How often is someone named uh, Simon? <laughs> and and why, why does he have to be called Simon Peter? Uh, that's called disambiguation, a whole other side story there. That, that even the rare, the rare names don't require disambiguation, but the common names do. Like Simon is a common name, so Simon Peter or Simon Barjona, Simon son of Jonah. So this, this is just really good evidence and indirect evidence, like unintentional evidence. This wasn't plotted by Mark. I will calculate the names so that they look more, so that in the future, Palestinian, you know, Israeli historians can, you know, that's like not what Mark's doing. What we see here is that Mark is actually recording real history. And when we read about Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, and a, a rare healed individual who has a name. So he's not just a person who is healed. He has a name. The reason for this, most likely, the best theory that I think is out there, is that Mark is just giving the name of the guy because the guy is still a Christian when Mark is writing. He's still accessible to at least some of Mark's readers, some of the people in his community. They can actually look and say, hey, Bartimaeus, tell me more about your story. I think that's pretty significant. He's a living witness known to the reader. And that is probably the reason why Mark includes names in some cases and not in others. It's almost random unless you realize some of these guys are still witnesses alive when Mark is writing. Now, the name uh, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, means son of Timaeus, son of Timaeus. So why is, why is Mark saying Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, if that's just what it means? There's a couple different theories on this. One theory is that... Um, that not only is Bartimaeus, who his father named, gave him his namesake, called him Bartimaeus, not only is Bartimaeus of interest to the early church, but so is Timaeus. It's possible that his dad, Timaeus, also is a follower of Christ and is also accessible as an eyewitness. That is possible. It also could be an alternate option, and both could be true, by the way. Uh, but an alternate option is that Mark is just translating for his non-Jewish readers, for his Greek readers. He often does this. So when Jesus is like saying, you know, uh, Talitha kum to the little girl, he says, little girl arise, you know, there would be a translation for that in the gospel. So he'll sometimes record an Aramaic saying and then translate it for us. We see that in Mark several times. So that could also be the thing. He's just translating the name. Um, now, one little last tidbit 
about his name here. Uh, Bartimaeus, he's the only healed person who actually then goes on to follow Christ, who becomes a follower of Christ. This is unique, it's in, and it's right before Jerusalem. So he, so he, he starts following Jesus, and boom, the cross. So he follows Christ right to the cross, so to speak. Uh, this is this is uh, a very interesting account, the final miracle of Jesus, and we're going to dig into it in more detail now. Um, oh, by the way, the reason why I mentioned him following Jesus right at the cross is because it makes it more likely that Bartimaeus was actually known to the early church. The reason is this: those people who come for for Passover, which is what happens during the during the crucifixion that's during Passover so he comes to Passover then the the Jew would want to stick around because the feast of Pentecost is coming so those who come to Jerusalem that year and he's believing in Jesus he's been healed by Jesus next thing he sees Jesus dies next thing he starts hearing rumors of the resurrection he's he's sticking around because uh, most likely because of the feast days as well as because he now has sight and he wants to be attached to that community and then the um, the coming of the Holy Spirit, he may well have been, it's good reasoning to think he was one of the ones who was of the 120 who was gathered, that was praying and that received the, the Holy Spirit. And so then he's there part of the community at its initial founding. What happens then? Everybody casts their lots in. They have a, a season of communal living, which was a, a voluntary and wonderful thing that they did. And then, you know, Bartimaeus would have been very likely there for the whole thing. I mean, he's a poor beggar. He doesn't have a home to go back to. So he probably threw his lot in with the church and stuck around for quite a while. Another reason to think that he was a known witness. All right. Bartimaeus. Let's learn a little bit more about this guy. We, we get two real details. He's blind and he's a beggar. He's blind and he's a beggar. This means that he is he has no money. Uh, he has no home. He has no significant funds. And he's probably homeless and a beggar. I, I mean, it's possible he has somewhere he, he, he sets up, but he probably doesn't have a home, right? Like a nice home probably has some maybe some sort of uh, makeshift setup but it's I just want to point out something about him he's not just homeless okay he's a proper beggar and this is this is going to sound um, I, I encourage those of you who are about to get triggered by me to just hear me out okay I'm not I'm probably not saying what you think I'm saying if you listen carefully you'll get my point and I know I'll get reamed in the comments from somebody who has already started typing <laughs> but um at any rate the uh, the nature of his being a beggar and being homeless in that sense is not, we're not to, to look at it through modern lens. Modern lens would say homeless people are basically all, this is, the, this is what I get. I mean, I live in California, so we have certain culture out here that homeless people are basically victims and they're just suffering un, uh, wrongly in all situations. And I don't think that's the case. Most of the time, and I've done a lot of homeless ministry, and most of the time homelessness comes along with um serious antisocial behavior the, the reason why the person's homeless is because they because they've they beat up their boss they, they or you know, maybe it's not always that extreme but there's activities and behaviors that have cut off you know jobs and relations from their lives and that's what has you know caused them to be in this place uh, even more frequently there's drug abuse willful choosing to just use drugs a lot and so those who do homeless ministry have to keep this in mind like that those i'm ministering to aren't just victims who need a handout Right? They, they might need a handout, but that's not just that they're victims who need a handout. They're very often in bondage to all kinds of sin issues that have messed up their lives. Not in every case, not in every case, but that is more common. And if we don't, you know, if we're not honest about that, it's hard to do homeless ministry properly. But Bartimaeus, it's not really that situation, is it? He doesn't seem to be drug addicted. He's not antisocial, I don't think. He says some bold things here. I think that what Bartimaeus is, is he's an example of someone who's truly just suffering because of the lot in life that he has been dealt. 
the guy's blind, whether he was born that way or became that way somehow. And it has caused him to not be able to work. And he doesn't have the ability to support himself or to have a family. He's probably never been married because of this blindness. That's at least seems implied. Um, I would I would think it's more likely true than not. And that's probably why he's sitting at the road. He's He's blind, he's poor, and people are traveling to Jerusalem for Passover. And so he gets on the edge of the road and he's there just asking for money asking for money. Now, this is the kind of guy that I would hope you would support, that you would offer a donation to, where a guy's not going to just go use it for some, you know, some drugs. He's not going to just going to use it to get a hit. Instead, he like needs it to sustain himself. And I, I hope that we would support him. So this is an opportune time for him. Uh, in particular, when people are traveling for a religious festival to Jerusalem, it's a great time to ask them for money, right? Because people who are on their way to, you know, with all their supplies, traveling to worship and to celebrate, they're much more likely to give. And so this is like a good opportunity for him. It's kind of like, you know, when people increase their donations around Christmas time or something. All right, let's look at verse 47. When they heard, uh, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. So the crowd, interestingly enough, calls Jesus the Nazarene. Notice it's the crowd because he hears this. He's not hearing it from the disciples. It's more likely that he's asking the crowd, hey, who's what's going on? What's the commotion? What's the noise about? And they said, oh, it's Jesus the Nazarene. That means Jesus, the one who's from Nazareth. It's, it's a, it, this is a, a dis, an example of a disambiguation. There's lots of guys named Jesus, a lot of guys named Jesus back then, or Jesus in Greek, or Yeshua in Hebrew. And this is a very common name. So you have to say Jesus and add something to it. And so they uh, sometimes say Jesus, the carpenter, when he's in Nazareth. Of course, you don't say Jesus of Nazareth when he's in Nazareth. That doesn't help you at all. There may be five Jesuses in Nazareth. And so um, here in Jerusalem, though, he does say it. Now, this on once on uh, or near Jerusalem in Jericho, when uh, when we see this, Jesus, the Nazarene, this I kind of get two things out of this. First off, the crowd isn't really recognizing him for who he is. This is late in his ministry. He's done radical miracles. It would be uh, appropriate to call him something more than just Jesus, the Nazarene. But it may have been controversial to call Jesus something more than Jesus, the Nazarene. The, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders who had a lot of power, their, their official stance is against Jesus. And so it would have been interesting to see socially what happens with what you ta attach at the end of the name Jesus in that context. Jesus, the one. Jesus, the prophet. Jesus, the miracle worker. Jesus, the rabbi. Like those things would all get you in a lot of trouble probably. They just say Jesus, the Nazarene. So this reflects a, a lack of recognition, but it also reflects another mark of possibly historicity in Mark. Because Jesus is more often called Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene, the further he gets from Galilee. Now, Nazareth is near Galilee, right? And this, you know, near the Sea of Galilee. And this area, you would, it'd be more likely to run into multiple Jesuses of Nazareth in that area. But as you move further down south and you're getting closer to Jerusalem, you're in Jericho, you're in other locations, it's a lot easier to identify him as Jesus of Nazareth because it's more unique in that location. And that's what we see in the Gospel of Mark. Now he's going to be called Jesus of Nazareth more often. It'll actually be up on the cross as well. So this may imply some more historicity here. Now he has a different view than the crowd. The crowd says Jesus the Nazarene. And <laughs> speaking of social pressure, this guy cries out Jesus son of David. Now keep in mind the disciples had been told not to say that Jesus was the Christ. And the title son of David is absolutely a messianic title. Both in the Old Testament, if you're just reading the Old Testament, you see that the son of David is this, I mean, 
clearly it's the Messiah. Plus, in the Jewish culture of the time, they thought Son of David was a Messianic title. So this is clear. He's calling him the Christ. Now, in the past, when Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. But now there's, no, there's nothing in this passage where he's told to stop saying it. Don't, I never said, stop saying, son of David, shh, don't tell anybody. He's not even told to be keep quiet about his healing. And that's because Jesus is now going to the cross. The reason for delaying the public information, at least one main reason, for delaying the public information about who Christ truly was and proclamation is because it would immediately result in the cross. Jesus delays it to extend his ministry. And then when the time has come, there's no more secretness. There's no more quietness. It's just... He's going to, in fact, he's going to make things even more obvious in the next chapters publicly. So he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That messianic title. This is actually the first occurrence of the phrase son of David in the uh, gospel of Mark. And it's the first occurrence of it. And it's in the last healing. And it's in the healing where a blind man can see who Jesus is. And you see some of the theological connotations here. God's making a theological point. You know, Jesus, how he taught, like, blessed are the poor, the meek, those who mourn. He says he didn't come to call righteous but sinners to repentance. He rejects the rich man. He receives the blind man. You catch the idea? He wants the broken. He wants the poor. He wants those who have their spiritual response to God happening. Not their personal value and arrogance and their own version of goodness like the rich man. Now, this is not just in the Gospels. We get this also, um, this, this, this teaching. And it's important that we kind of understand what this is about. In 1 Corinthians one twenty six, we read we read the same kind of concept about um, Jesus, who he's calling, and who responds to the gospel message. This is super valid today. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Now he adds according to the flesh because the point is, yeah, you're, there is true wisdom in knowing Christ. He, he's talking about those who are puffed up with their own knowledge. Knowledge puffs up and those who feel that they understand and they really know a lot of things. And it's funny because we don't really, none of us are really smart in the true sense. <laughs> That's my theory on things. None of us are really smart. We're just smarter than the people we interact with on a regular basis. And that makes us feel very confident about ourselves. But by comparison to God, we're all idiots. And that's a healthy thing to recognize. You know, that, that um, I, like, like Job says, like, oh, I've spoke of things I didn't understand. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big dumb. <laughs> that's kind of how he ends his uh, revelation there. So not many were mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. God chooses those who recognize their weakness and their lowliness. He chooses them on purpose because he wants to show his grace and his power and his love and for us not to have that kind of arrogant attitude. Our culture doesn't really get this. Um, Let me explain how I think we read it wrong sometimes because of our culture. Before I get to new age stuff. Our culture, we romantically think that what Jesus is really doing is he's showing that this homeless guy is really a great guy. He's really the good guy in disguise. You know, like those old movies from the 90s where it was like uh, they would, the the ironic and hypocritical movies of the 90s where they would, would, it would be about like a a girl who's like a total dork and nerd and she's not not attractive and really she's just wearing glasses. And then later on she gets a makeover and and then everybody sees how pretty she really is. Like that's... It's, what's ironic about it is that these these um, 
in in trying to like pretend that they're removing um obsession with beauty and looks that's all they're all about right they get the most beautiful actress they can and then just put glasses on her and pretend that she's not attractive but they weren't they wouldn't actually risk not having an attractive actress you know because because they're hypocrites and maybe some of us are too so our culture though doesn't get this we're, we're, we think that the blind guys like that woman like that like the girl in the glasses oh he was always beautiful he was always pure he was always wonderful and and jesus got him he's he's like you're you're one of mine you're gonna be one of mine blind bartimaeus that's actually not the message of the gospels he's not an awesome guy in disguise he's not the good guy compared to the rich man's bad guy the point is and this is this is important in the gospels in the entire entirety of scripture is that everyone's like this man Everyone's like this blind man. When it comes to Christ, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to what we can offer God, we are poor, we are blind, and we have nothing to offer except a plea for mercy and a recognition of who Jesus is. You are the son of David. You did die on the cross for my sins, and I just appeal for your mercy. That's the lesson we're supposed to get. Not a romanticizing of, of um, and role reversals uh, kind of thing. It's, it's instead those who realize they're lowly, they're the ones that God will lift up. Humble yourself on the side of the Lord and he will lift you up. That's the idea. So everyone's like this man, lost, sinful, and in need of mercy. And that's the lesson Jesus is trying to get across. Not the modern trend of pretending that prostitutes are great people and churchgoers are wicked hypocrites, right? This is, I hear this all the time. The comparison is usually either prostitutes um, or, or people who go to bars. So like church, full of hypocrites. Bars, real people. That's, that's the comparison. And I'm like, well, this isn't really a, uh, it's more like church has a lot of hypocrites. Bars also has a lot of hypocrites, <laughs> you know, church desperately need the grace of Jesus Christ in order to be sustained day to day. Prostitutes, same. The question is who's willing to recognize it? Who's willing to humble themselves and acknowledge it? We have to stop looking around the world and thinking we're going to find the good, sincere people versus the bad, mean people. And then more and more we think, oh, bad, mean you know, people in authority, people in church, people who have wealth, and then good, sincere people are poor and they're and they're living obviously sinful lives. But that's okay, you know. <laughs> uh, no, this is not a Christian worldview. Christian worldview puts us all in the bad people category and says, whoever's over here that's humble, they will be transported into the kingdom of God. So everyone's like this man. We all have deep needs. This is insulting, yes, to the self-righteous, but to those who are honest with themselves and have their spiritual lights on, Self, real spiritual self-awareness, they realize that they're wicked and they need grace. And this is not a surprise to them at all. I think it's not a surprise at all. <clears throat> so he says, his, his appeal to Jesus is revealing. He says, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. That's, that's his appeal. I think that in one phrase we've summarized, now it's probably the blind man may have said more than that, but in one phrase we've summarized his entire attitude towards Jesus. Like, Jesus, you're the son of God and I just need your mercy. I mean, this is, do you see how this is a theological commentary on coming to Christ the right way? This means he has no sense of due. He has just a deep sense of need. He doesn't think he deserves to be healed. He just knows he needs it. And this is the same attitude we should have towards forgiveness. Entitlement, I think, is a major problem today. Um, and I don't, I'm not trying to harp on things. I, I actually want to share this in a way that hopefully helps us see it in our own hearts and rid ourselves of it. If I have a sense of entitlement, it's primarily shown in my, uh, in my complaining and in my lack of gratitude. And the less entitled I am, the more I'm grateful and the less I complain. And you can see these things kind of on a scale. 
do I complain more or am I more grateful? And as you're moving on that scale, you're moving, you know, entitlement. If you complain more, I guess the complaining more would put it down low because scales work that way. So if you complain more, it, you know, then you're more entitled. If you, if you complain less and you're more grateful, then you're less entitled. And the ironic thing is listening to the things different people complain about. And we, we have the old slogan nowadays. We, we say first world problems. And I think it's part of a self-awareness that I'm here complaining about things that other people, you know, for example, I'm complaining that um, it's taking me too long in this drive-through, whereas somebody else doesn't have food and they're not even complaining. Sometimes all the prosperity causes us to become more complainers, bigger complainers. And an example of this is, is when you when you get AC, right? I, I've, I, I uh, didn't have AC for quite a while. First couple of cars I ever owned didn't have AC. And... Once I got it, all of a sudden, I'm way more sensitive to temperature, right? Like, I'm like, man, it's really hot in this car. And I didn't really complain. Like, I used to be driving around my old 66 Mustang, which was not a cool car, actually. It was just run down and <laughs> falling apart. And I had to put a towel behind me on the seat because it would get so hot in the car. And I was driving to, I remember driving to interviews. And I was like, I don't want to walk in this interview covered in sweat. But it was summertime. And so I put a towel behind me on the seat to help absorb some of the you know, and, and to try to prevent some of the sweat from the fake leather of the interior of the car. Um, and I would, I would drive, you know, with my, with my windows down and all this. And it just wasn't that big of a deal. It was just like, you just get along. And I think that it's funny that the more blessings we have, the more likely we are to complain about things that we wouldn't have even complained about before. So just keep it in mind, guard your heart, make sure that you don't have this attitude of, of entitlement. It's evidenced by complaining about things that maybe you didn't used to complain about, that you wouldn't have thought yourself complaining about <clears throat> in, in the past. Now, there's a new age version of this entitlement that this man totally seems to debunk. And this is the idea that I'm divine. We're all divine. And the new, the new age teaching is that you, you, you sort of are, I don't know how, what terms they'll use for it, but they're going to call themselves divine or we have like a God spark in us or something like that. And this is going to create a sense of, of entitlement in the world around you and the way people ought to treat you and what you deserve and that kind of thing. That That's not biblical at all. This guy doesn't have that attitude at all. The way that word, word of faith and hyper charismatic, and not everybody who's, who calls himself word of faith does this, but there's a significant group that does. The way that they kind of adopt some of these new age things is they'll take the teaching in scripture about us being children of God. And then they will try to turn that into this sort of entitlement scenario. I think this is kind of carnal and it uh, end up, ends up being a worldly focus, but it kind of works like this. You're a child of the king. The king wants his kids to have nice things. If you hear that, it means that your leader, your pastor, your teacher has gone really, really like off the reservation when it comes to the, the biblical teaching of what it means to follow Jesus. You're a child of the king. It means God wants you to have good things. It, it ends up treating God's coming kingdom like it's a present kingdom, and it ignores some of the specific callings of Jesus Christ. It ignores Paul's teaching on contentment. It ignores this guy's attitude right here where he doesn't expect anything but just has needs. I think that it ends up being um, a synonym for a type of self-righteousness. This, I'm a child, it's ended up being a self-righteous thing where I just deserve, I deserve, I deserve, and it creates a lot of issues in a lot of ways. I just want to point out that that's not the attitude the blind man has. In verse 48, we read the following. 
Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So a lot of people told him to be quiet, and you and you you get kind of, oh, there you go. You get kind of the focus of it here. It's sternly. They were sternly telling him. So imagine you're the blind guy. You don't see what's going around. You hear Jesus is coming. You start yelling for him. And then the crowd's telling you effectively, shut up. Stop. Hey, quiet. Stop. You're, you're causing problems. Why did they do this? Well, this, there could be a few reasons. For one, in their culture, and this is not biblical, this is just first century culture, Judaism, they thought that if the man was blind, it was because he sinned or maybe his parents sinned, somebody sinned, he deserves what he's got. That was their attitude. Jesus rebukes this in John 9 because someone asks him about a different blind man. Why was he born blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus is like, no. <laughs> I like how he just is like, no. So th that, that was a typical view of the time. So they see the blind man. You immediately devalue him because you're like, hey, you're in this because you deserve it, which is ironic because it implies that I'm, I have sight because I must be better than you. And that's the flaw, thinking that we're good people when we're really in need of mercy. Also, they probably just thought he was annoying, right? The guy's, the guy's crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he's yelling, and they just thought he was annoying. He can't even see Jesus. He's just yelling into space. How loud do you suppose he yelled? Probably as loud as he could, or at least very loud. Probably very loud because he doesn't know how far Jesus is. He wants to make sure Jesus hears him. He just does it again and again and again, and the crowd is annoyed. It's a pathetic scene, and it's meant to look pathetic. Remember the rich man with all his pomp? He ends up going away from Jesus, sorrowful because he won't follow. Remember the blind man with no pomp, full of pity, a pitiful scenario, a pitiful looking man. And Jesus is like, you, you I'm going to receive. I think that that's pretty awesome. The ironic thing here <clears throat> is that he knows who Jesus is and he acknowledges it publicly, which should be very impressive. Like if we saw a high priest acknowledging Jesus as the son of David, we'd be like, whoa, but he's a blind beggar. So the people are like, whatever. And he's told to be quiet, but it impresses Jesus. And so a profession of faith, even from the most pitiful person in the world, is an is, it impresses God. And Jesus responds in verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, um, come call him here. Oh, by the way, uh, let me just point this out. He kept calling out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So he, did, he raised his voice or he yelled more frequently or, or he just didn't care. I need, I need, I need. Desperation, remember that. That's important. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man saying to him, take courage, stand up. He's calling for you. <laughs> the about face of the crowd is kind of funny here. Um, hey, shut up. From that to, oh, take courage, stand up. He's calling for you. Now, we don't know that it was the same people in the crowd, but it's definitely a change of the crowd in general. That there's this, hey, be quiet, to like, take courage, stand up, and we'll come back to that in a minute. I think that we should take note of that. It's important. There's an irony here, and that is that if Jesus didn't respond to this blind man, why would he listen to any of us? Because we're all in the same condition. We're all blind apart from Christ. We're all poor beggars, spiritually speaking, in need of the grace and the love and the forgiveness of God. So if he didn't respond to this man, then I would think none of us have hope. But Jesus responds to this man. And then it says that he uh, he stands up, he takes, he throws aside his cloak, he jumps up and he comes to Jesus. Let's talk about his cloak for a moment because little details like this are interesting. Like why, would, why is this included? His cloak didn't have to be mentioned. Could just say he stood up and came to Jesus. Um, he may have used it to sit on. It's possible this cloak was being used to sit on. Generally speaking, beggars would, you know, on the dirt road, they're going to put something down, a pallet, something down to sit on. Um, 
and then they're going to be begging from that position. So it may be that this was something he was sitting on. Ultimately, it seems like if that's the case, he's not going to need it anymore. So he casts it off. Or he's so excited that he just throws it off and forgets about it. You know, or he just decides, I'm going to get healed. I'm not going to need to sit on the side of this road anymore. And so he just ditches the cloak. Maybe it's just a ratty old cloak just for sitting on. Maybe a beggar's cloak, so to speak. And he's like, don't need it. That's a possibility too. I'm not entirely sure. But there's an ironic contrast here. The only thing we're aware of that this beggar owns is this coat. And the, the he gives it up. He sets it aside and comes and follows Jesus. However, the rich man in the very last story that we read about in Mark, that man owns a great deal of stuff and he wouldn't sell it all, give it away and follow Jesus. They both gave away, it seems, pretty much all they had and then, or would have had to give away all they had. But all the beggar had was almost nothing and all the rich man had was a lot. And this is the contrast. Those who have huge value in this world and see a high cost of following Jesus, they're less likely to follow. Those who realize that this world doesn't have much to offer them, and it's, it's easy, it's nothing. Just cast it off and come follow Jesus. And so that's maybe more about our perspective than anything else. Verse 51, we read on. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. Now, these are the same words that Jesus actually said, what do you want me to do for you? <clears throat> it's like the exact same words that Jesus said to James and John. I think it was last week we were in that passage. So James and John wanted power. They wanted to sit on Jesus's right and left in his kingdom in authority. That was what they were going for. And Jesus, he ironically, so they come, we want you to do us an open and a blank check favor. And Jesus goes, what do you want me to do for you? So with him, he's inquiring what's the request because he's about to turn them down. <laughs> and with this guy, it's like the opposite. Even though it's the same words, it's like totally reversed. He, he, he says to the blind man, what do you want me to do for you? This is like an invitation for a request, right? Jesus is kind of shutting down James and John, but here he's opening the door and letting the blind man know that he can ask a request. They wanted power and they were self-seeking for position and rank. He just wants healing. And I think that what we want from God reveals a lot about us and it changes God's posture towards us. If it's selfish, if it's carnal prayers, if it's if it's according to my own um, carnal desires, selfish desires, most likely the answer is going to be a big no. But not to the blind man and not to the humble. All right, verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. We're going to focus on that for a little while here. But your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Your faith has made you well. Now, he, now, Jesus did say go, and you might think, so the, the guy didn't follow Jesus. He said, go, your faith is... Well, go doesn't necessarily have to mean go away. I don't want you near me. It could just mean you no longer have to stay here in this place on the side of the road begging. So he's giving he's giving him a new life is the idea. Your faith is made. And then he says, your faith has made you well. He gets aside. He starts following Jesus. Why does Jesus seem to... I mean, look at the terminology here. Your faith has made you well. It looks like faith is the thing that's doing the healing, Right? That's how New Age and Word of Faith teachers who borrow from the New Age, that's how they often teach this. And I think there's a problem here. I think it's a bit unbalanced. Um, the teaching often goes like this. You know, if, if and here's the, and I'm not going to try to put it in their terms. Here's the message you get from the teaching. Here's what I think they're trying to get me to think. That if I believe hard enough, my faith is almost like its own sort of power source. And if I have enough of that power source, I can sort of cause things to happen with faith. 
faith is treated like a substance or like an energy source through which I can accomplish things. And that is not biblical. And it's true that you can take that phrase, your faith has made you well, and you can do that with it. But you've added a whole lot of extra stuff that the Bible has not taught. That's an unbalanced thing. One of the things they ignore is God's will. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but but I don't want to overreact to the false teaching that's in New Age teaching that, that's not biblical, that's not true, or that is being borrowed by word of faith stuff. And I'm going to be doing a video eventually here on um, a book that has been heavily endorsed by like a ton of leaders of Bethel called uh, The Physics of Heaven that that actually specifically says that they're trying to they're trying to borrow from the new age and 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 you know take back take back truths and god's very much opposed to this kind of thing this is what israel did when when they put the uh the golden calf you know aaron built the golden calf and he put it in front of the people of israel and he says and it's, i i never it just strikes me so strongly what he said he said this is yahweh who led you out of egypt he points to the golden calf and calls it Yahweh. This is what it looks like when you try to be Christian and pagan at the same time, right? You 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 take things from unbiblical, ungodly things and you just label them with Christian labels. In this case, your faith has made you well is is a way of grabbing sometimes new age teachings and giving it a Christian label. And that I've been seeing for years. So let's talk about that. And by the way, I don't want to overreact. I don't want to reject this biblical truth that, that faith is super important. Faith is key in your prayers and praying for healing and God doing a work in your life and the lives of those around you. So I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I just want to get rid of the bathwater. <laughs> and so um, let's, let's now see a pattern in Mark. What is it that Jesus is trying to get at when he's like, hey, your faith has made you well? So I'm going to take you through a number of passages in Mark that give us a pattern, that give us the context. Because the context isn't new age anything. The context is the kind of people that get healing from Jesus. What attitude they have. Faith's not an energy source. It's, it, it's an attitude. All right. Here's the attitude they have. Um, a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then he gets healed. What do we see? We see an attitude of like desperation, need, a confidence that Jesus can heal and a willingness to like, they, they must have this sense of desperation, urgency, and, and faith all at the same time. In Mark 2, we see the same kind of theme. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. He saw their faith. What was what was he saw? An energy source? No, he saw them ripping the roof apart so they could lower their friend down. This is him saying, look at how much you're pursuing me. How much you, you believe that I can bring this healing and how committed you are to it. That's, that's faith. So we have a sense of strong hope and commitment, even a sense of desperation. Let's look at another example in Mark 5.22. And this is me trying to get the baby, not the bathwater. <laughs> in Mark 5.22... One of the synagogue's official, synagogue officials, uh, keep in mind his position, named Jairus, came up uh, and on seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter's at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And then Jesus is going to heal his daughter. Now, check this out. He's a synagogue official. And what does he do? He falls at the feet of Jesus. Remember how Jesus is a controversial figure from right at the beginning. Leaders, when they 
fall at the feet of controversial figures, they draw negative criticisms that most guys don't want. Jairus was willing to do that. He was willing to put himself in harm's way because he was desperate and he believed Jesus could help. So we see a sense of hope, commitment, and prayer that's not about uh, making faith particles manifest in the universe like some sort of uh, midichlorines, okay? This is, this, is, this is not, you know, any kind of sci-fi adventure. What this is, is, is a real confidence in the person of Christ, and that's being revealed through the way that they approach him in prayer or in request. Given another example. Mark six fifty three. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret, and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat immediately, people recognized him. And this is Jesus' trip uh, to the same general area as where the man who would, he'd cast all the demons out of, and then that guy probably told everybody all about it. Now they're like, Jesus is back, he's here. And people ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place where they heard he was. And so wherever he is, they're like carrying sick people, which is not easy and is inconvenient and might even be potentially harmful to the sick people as you're carrying them around. But they believed in Jesus that much. And they went up and Jesus healed. So this is this is a, kind of a big deal. What did they do? They implored him that they might just touch the fridge of his cloak. Just this sense of desperation and confidence outwardly expressed. I think that's the consistent thing we see. When we get uh, to the blind man, there's another blind man in Mark 8.22. And in that passage, it just says that he implored or begged Jesus to touch him and he gets healing. And then finally, we have today's passage where the guy cries out, Jesus, son of David, the crowd tells him to be quiet. He yells louder and more frequently. And then Jesus is like, all right, come here. Your faith has made you well. The faith is not attached to his, his manifested midichlorines of faith, is not attached to his incredible like juju of faith powders that he has stored up inside of, inside of his heart. It's attached, the faith is attached to him being so confident in Christ that he was crying out, in, you know, while the crowd told him to be quiet, that he wouldn't stop, that he knew who Jesus was, called him the son of David, and he appealed for mercy. It's the right posture, the right attitude, and that's the, the focus that we should have. People who seek Christ, here's the point, with intentionality and humility, seeking for mercy, they often receive his attention and blessings. Now, here's how you rescue it from the, from the bathwater. This is not a guarantee for healing. This is not a guarantee for healing. A verse I've covered recently, and I'm going to talk about again, because we have to always keep this in mind, because God gave us this text. John, 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, the faith healers want to take this passage and act like, um, I say faith healers, I, I mean, I believe in healing by faith. I don't want to, to ride that i'm talking about the i'm talking about the weirdos guys you know what i'm talking about <laughs> and what they what they want to do is take a phrase like this and try to get get around it by suggesting that it's always god's will for healing um it's always god's will and they'll even bend it so much that you would think it's always god's will to do whatever you really want god to do well that's certainly not the case what what we're getting here is if you are going to pray and get a yes there are certain requirements and here's this is this is i think important let me formalize prayer for you just for a moment Here's a scientific formula <laughs> for it. Um, you need prayer in faith, and it has to be according to God's will. Those are the two things. Prayer in faith and according to God's will. If either of those things is lacking, then the answer is probably a no. 
If both of those things are present, the answer is probably a yes. That's our formula for prayer. Prayer in faith, strong confidence in God, desperation, belief, and trust in him. And yes, must be according to God's will. So he can say no. So faith that, and here's the beautiful truth, faith that says, I believe God can heal me, I believe that God can heal me, and I'm trusting in him for that. That same faith is also active when you trust God because he doesn't heal you. When you trust God even though he says no, because for some reason, that's not according to his will. If you have confident faith for healing, you should have confident faith for not healing. That's faith. I think it's beautiful, and I think it needs to be taught more. Now, I gave a bunch of examples in Mark where we have that kind of faith going on. And um, Jesus' healing ultimately in Mark isn't about teaching us that we're always going to get healed all the time. Instead, it's about teaching us that he can forgive. That's what we got from the story of the paralytic. We've talked about this in the past. Sorry for those who you don't know the passage. It, it's in my Mark series. But basically, Jesus heals the, the, the paralyzed man. And he says, just so that you'll know that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. So the real thing is, like, if I'm desperate in need of healing of my sin... And it is according to God's will every time that you be forgiven. So we know we get a yes every time with that prayer. So there are well-meaning but fearful people who think things like, will Jesus really forgive me? Was he really want to forgive me? Is it really God's will? Absolutely. That was the whole point of the coming of Christ. I want to be like this, the crowd the second time and say to you, stand up, take courage. He's calling for you. Not, not, not shut up. You don't count. <laughs> um, yeah, if you feel that sense of, oh, okay, I, I know I need salvation, but now I feel like I don't deserve it. Actually, you were supposed to feel like you didn't deserve it the whole time. Now you're ready to receive it. He's calling for you. Now let's talk a little bit more about the New Age distortions of faith um, that seeps into churches through pulpits. And I'll give you an example of a pastor who was guest speaking one time at a domestic violence um, training event that I was at. Because, again, I was a domestic violence counselor for years. And this pastor came and I thought, oh, good. We need more Christian leaders in this. Because in DV counseling, you, you, can, you can feel the lack of the focus upon the truth of God that's sometimes there. And I was like, good, they got a pastor. And this pastor came up and talked all about vibrations. Vibrations. And this is treating faith like it is actually some sort of like a juju vibration magic power kind of thing. And he taught that, you know, everything has vibrations. Sound waves have vibrations. Quantum, they, these people always want to use quantum physics and they butcher it. And they don't know. And the people following them don't know because nobody understands quantum physics. So if you want to butcher something, pick something no one understands, right? And so uh, they, they'll say quantum physics and vibrations and particles and waves and all this. And so if you have the right vibrations, then you can, you can kind of get what you want from the universe. The Christian, the reason why he's a pastor doing this is because he's going to try to, to connect this to scripture. He's going to, he's taking a golden calf and calling it Yahweh. He's taking this new age wacky teaching about basically giving us powers and he's trying to attach it to Christianity somehow. Now, when you hear this kind of thing, it hits you weird and it should. You think it's weird because it is weird. You're, you're getting exactly what's going on. That is not what Jesus is talking about. He says, your faith has made you well. He's not talking about your vibrations. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about faith as entitlement, as though he deserves it. Remember Bartimaeus? His attitude is, have mercy on me. Some teachers, in, even in some of the word faith stuff, that what they'll do is they will, they will act like Christians deserve all of these powerful, wonderful blessings. We should be ruling in the kingdom right now. We should be, you know, landfalls of wealth coming in and power and authority. And you're, you're, you're not going to be the servant. You're going to be the boss. 
all that kind of thing. Um, no, that has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with this passage at all. Bartimaeus is like, have mercy on me. The whole context is, I don't deserve this. Faith is also three. It's not, this is the third one I've given. It's not about being in constant good health if you have faith. And here I'm going to labor on this a little bit longer because it's a, it's, it's a concept that is just so often brushed aside. And yet it's so needful that you as a Christian understand that you're going to suffer and that even if you're healed once, you'll get sick again, most likely, and that you're ready for that. So let me give you some examples. Um, first off, the Bible just calls us to be ready for various trials. I've talked about that recently, so I won't go through those passages. I went through that before James and First Peter and stuff. Also, Paul, he wrote about one of his fellow workers, a guy named Epaphroditus in Philippians 2. And Epaphroditus almost died. He was so sick, he almost died. And it, now, what's interesting is that it, it, this doesn't look like the way that um, faith healers talk about when people get sick. Listen to when people get sick in their congregation. It, whenever the guy gets better, it's like, oh, but we, we pray, we, pray, we move that mountain and God healed him. And they're going to take credit like it, was a, like it was a miraculous healing, not a natural healing, generally speaking. But, but Paul has no shame in Philippians 2 of saying, Epaphroditus, he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy and now he's better. The implication is that he healed naturally or at least after some prolonged sickness. And Paul doesn't even feel anxiety like he has to explain how one of his fellow ministry workers got sick. Whereas the faith healing crowd, they have to always work hard at like expending an explanation for explaining their own illnesses or the illnesses of others around them. Paul doesn't even bother because he's not creating the theology that they are. Paul again, and I'll give you, I'll give you the text here. 2 Timothy 4.2, uh, 4.20, excuse me. In this pass, passage, he mentions a guy named uh, um, Trophimus. I was going to say Erastus, but that's not the one I'm looking at. Tro but Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. And that's all he says about the guy. Now, if Paul was actually a prosperity preacher of like faith healing and stuff like that, everyone's going to always get healed. He never would just casually throw out, oh, and one of my fellow missionaries, I had to leave sick in some other city because there was no healing and there was no healing coming. So I just left him there. I mean, Paul had seasons where everywhere he went, people got healed, right? He has seasons as he's preaching the gospel where God does this to demonstrate the truth of the gospel, but he doesn't even expect it to happen all the time. He just leaves Trophimus there sick in a church full of people that obviously aren't faith healing people. He doesn't explain it away. He doesn't feel like he has to defend it because that's not his theology. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, that doesn't mean that faith, that all healing stopped. Maybe it diminished at some point, but it doesn't mean that it stopped. Maybe it's not at its highest at all seasons, you know, like when Paul's going out preaching the gospel and then God blesses miraculously to demonstrate the truth of the gospel. Maybe it's less in cities and congregations and areas where the gospel's already been saturated in because then there's a different witness. God doesn't continually provide the same miracles over and over. Look at Egypt. Um, look at Israel, I mean. Uh, they're, how what he did with Egypt was meant to be a recollection. You're supposed to remember this. Remember what God did. He doesn't going to reproduce all the same miracles over and over again forever. Um, so, But the point here is that it, there's no guarantee for healing. Even Paul himself, in the most controversial passage, probably in the word faith, hyper charismatic and you know, communities that are often borrowing from new age teachings. In this passage, <laughs> this controversial passage, Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself so he wouldn't get proud, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now he calls it a thorn in his flesh. Um, 
it, it seems that this was a physical ailment of some kind. It may have had an actual spiritual thing, like a messenger of Satan. But of course, when you know, in the book of Job, when Satan attacks Job, he gives him a disease, right? So the messenger of Satan could also just be a, a disease itself. I, I'm inclined to think it was a physical problem. But check this out. Whatever it is, if your answer is that, and I'll do a video on this one day, but if, if you think Paul's thorn was a physical ailment of some kind, or if you think Paul's thorn was um, an actual satanic entity, like a demon, that was you know constantly tormenting him, which, by the way, is worse than being sick. That would be the worst case scenario. I'd much rather be sick than be, have a demon regularly afflicting me. So I think some of the faith healers want to make this better. Well, it was probably demonic attack. Now, others want to say that the thorn in the flesh was like... Um, it was like uh, one of these one of these guys that that turned like Alexander the coppersmith who like turned his back on Paul and caused a bunch of problems for Paul. I don't think that that's the case here. He's he's not using terms that refer to people, and uh, and Paul who says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. I don't think he's going to call a person a thorn in the flesh. Anyway, a messenger of Satan to torment me to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Multiple times he implored. He had real serious concerted prayer about the issue. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. What is that? What is that? God has a purpose in my weaknesses, a purpose in my flaws, a purpose in my ongoing failings of, of not, I'm not just talking about sin. I'm talking about physical ailments, your, 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 your regular unhealed problem that's going on in your life, your psychological drama that you go through that is really annoying. <laughs> God's power is made perfect in that weakness. It makes you weak, but you rely on him even more. And that is so important. And it tells you something. That sometimes it's not God's will to heal you because he's doing something else in your character through the hardship you're going through. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And so he says he's content with weaknesses. Now, what, notice he connects all this to weakness. This is, again, reason to think it's a physical problem. He calls it weakness, weakness, weakness. He doesn't call it insult, persecution, difficulty. No, he calls it weakness. And so I, I think that this is a good reason to think it was a physical ailment. But at any rate, at any rate, Paul did not expect healing all the time for the people even who were doing missions with him, for himself even. He thought it was possible. He prayed for it, but he accepted God's will when the answer was no. In Galatians uh, 4.13, we see God using Paul's infirmities. It says, uh, but you know that it was because of bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. Galatians 4.13. Uh, That's interesting, right? It was bodily illness was why Paul was even preaching to the Galatians. Maybe he couldn't move on to some other location. So he was in them in great weakness. In 1 Corinthians, he writes about how he was in, he went to them and ministered to them in great weakness as well. He, he seemed to have physical ailments that trailed with him throughout his ministry. And God used those for his glory. Finally, I'll mention um, 1 Timothy 5.23. Trying to get rid of the bathwater here. Where Paul writes, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Use a little wine. So um, maybe, you know, maybe it's a missionary thing. He's traveling around doing missions and the water, you know, when you when you go away from home, you drink the water. Sometimes it's not so good for you. And so he says, use a little bit of wine too, and that may help. He's never telling him to be drunk. We know what the, we know what the teaching is on drunkenness in scripture. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, this passage, what it's ultimately saying is that, guess what? He had frequent ailments for which the cure was not just going to be prayer. It was like, use some wine. This seems to help. <laughs> this is, this is, uh, and if you, I have a teaching on alcohol, if you haven't seen it, 
um, what the Bible really says about alcohol. If you want to get into that, yes, you can drink. No, you should never get drunk. And it's a really serious issue if you do. But um, at any rate, Timothy, Timothy, who's, who's obviously like a godly servant, who's a faithful servant, who Paul says there's prophecies about Timothy. The the guy's a spirit-filled servant of Christ and he has frequent ailments. Why? Because that's the bathwater is thinking that healing's always going to come, that faith is like the, the, the juju of your belly that's going to cause all the good things to happen to you. Um, so faith is not, one, it is not a substance or a vibration that gets you what you want. Number two, faith is um, not, um, it's not always going to result in healing. It's not always going to result in a healing. And faith is not a sense of entitlement in which you feel like you deserve something. Then what is it? What is it? Faith is, I'm going to offer two things that faith is in this context. Faith is, and the, the reason why it's highlighted as your faith has made you well, faith is one, real strong confidence in Jesus, son of David, right? And two, faith is, so it's confidence in the person of God. It's not, it's not juju. It's just confidence in the person of God. <clears throat> it's confidence in Christ. And two, faith is opposed to works. Faith means you didn't earn it. That is a consistent teaching in scripture. It is by faith, not by works. Your faith <clears throat> has made you well. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't do anything for it. You just trusted in me. And that's all that I ask of you. That's the lesson. It's a lesson about salvation. It's not just a lesson about healing. It's consistent with this whole passage in context, right? Many warn him to be quiet. That's what happens. Then he's calling out, to, you know, uh, son of David even more. And Jesus says, Call him here. And then the crowd flips. Take courage. Stand up. He's calling for you. And, and that's the attitude we should all have. Again, I'll mention this. Our attitude to anyone who just trusts in Christ and offers nothing but a request for mercy. That's faith, not works. He says, we say, take courage. Stand up. He's calling for you. We should be like the second group and echo that. Now let's talk briefly about the theological implications of this healing. And then we're going to wind it up for today. Um, the theological implications. Okay, so he's a blind man, this final healing. He's a blind man who clearly sees that Jesus is the Messiah, the first, you know, outsider to just so, you know, non, not Peter, not one of the disciples, to so boldly proclaim who Christ is, son of David. Also, curing Jesus, Jesus curing his blindness is prophetically connected to the Messianic age in the Old Testament. One example of this is Isaiah 53, 5, that talks about how the Messiah, and in that Messianic age, there'll be the healing of the blind. So he calls him son of David. Jesus heals him. This is like a confirmation of Jesus's identity as the Messiah. But he, and he's the only healed person who, and maybe others did, but in Mark, we only read about this guy actually following Jesus after the healing. So I think this is basically, summary, a commentary on Jesus's whole mission. How, how men receive salvation. They just trust. And he takes the pitiful, who know their pitiful state, who offer nothing but faith and a desperate desire for forgiveness. And he says, come follow me. And he takes the rich and those who have pride in their own goodness and are attached to the things of this world. And he says, you need to get rid of that before you can come. That's the theological implication. Jesus wants those who offer nothing but faith. That's powerful. And then it goes on and it continues in Mark, the theological implications, because Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, they're going to be blind to Jesus. They're going to be blind to him, whereas the blind man saw him for who he was. And there's that contrast is going to be important for us to see. So those who desperately trust versus the arrogant and blind. 
and this and this is where the application comes it plays out in our lives today in our world today in a very real way those who um and, and i you guys know i love apologetics and i love offering people reasons intellectual reasons to believe that christianity is true i think we have i think god's given us a lot of good evidence for it and it's good to offer those reasons but sometimes we act like we're just pure logic machines and if you think that you are i'm just an unbiased logic machine right um and i'm just weighing the evidence here and there that's never true about anybody none of us you know you know what it's like it's like the old star trek episodes the original star trek where spock you know we always think of spock as being this emotionless guy but if you ever watch the old shows the guy breaks down and and has emotional outbursts like every other episode <laughs> he, he comes to his emotional end like every other episode maybe in the movies later he was much more together but not in the original series he was just like he's kind of a basket case like every every few episodes that's us, right? I'm just studying the evidence and I just want to make an unbiased observations and I'm going to come to my conclusions and it'll be all logical and perfect and then we're, and then we're freaking out behind the scenes. And, and that's the reality of it is that yes, the logical stuff is important. Gathering evidence is worthwhile. It's there and it supports Christianity. But the actual obstacle to coming to Christ is going to finally be, because that will just remove some of the debris, right? But the real obstacle is going to be my own yielding to God, my turning from sin, and my trusting in God. It's going to be a relational choice to trust in him and a decision that you're going to give up this world for eternity. You're going to give up the rebellion against God for knowing God and having his righteousness. And so that is what's going on here. And that's what the what causes the blindness or the sight. Some people can't see the evidence because of sin. Some people can see the evidence because they can see Christ for who he is. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4 talks about this. Last verse I'll share with you guys. It says, Even if our gospel is veiled, meaning people can't see it, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they, may not, they, may, they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They've been blinded. Now we could say they're, they're victims in a sense, but they're also perpetrators. They're both perpetrators and victims at the same time. It's just the reality of things. So if that's you, maybe you maybe you watch my videos and you're you're a skeptic, you're a non-believer, and you find that not only that you, the evidence doesn't convince you, but you find you're in a position where you're so good at dealing with evidence that no evidence would ever convince you, because you can spin artists your way out of any evidence you want. You 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 could juke really well. You know, and so whoop, whoop, you, you, you navigate around any evidence that's presented and all it takes is a what if scenario. Well, what if duh, 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 you don't need evidence to support your scenario? It's just I just what if you and then boof, I'm Christianity's no longer supported. May I encourage you that there may be a Spock thing going on here and that your blindness to see the goodness and the, and the, and the wonder of the gospel and the truth of God is related. I'm sorry, this might feel insulting, but think that it may be true that it's related actually to a rejection of God and an embracing of sin and pride. Projecting on God offenses that aren't from him and then being upset about it. That this is no longer about logic. This is about a spiritual thing that's happening. What would be the harm in praying that God softens your heart? I think it'd be a good idea. 
Now, in this passage, I want to mention also, there is a supposed contradiction. Uh, in, in, in the Gospels, we have one blind man in one story, two blind men in another story. We have Jesus heading into Jericho in one story and out of Jericho in another story. I've dealt with this in another video on Bible contradictions, and it's in the description below. You can click the link if you like to check it out. Long story short, no, it's there's no issue here. Uh, like a lot of these things on the surface, it's like, huh? And then you get into it and you go, oh, okay, I see. This is not really a problem. And next, we're going to continue the Mark series, uh, getting going into Jesus heading into Jerusalem. And things are going to heat up. And the theology of Mark is shifting. The, the teaching in Mark is very much shifting now. Things are changing. And it's exciting to step into the, the next sections. I have so much we're going to do in this book. And I'm still already praying about what we'll do after Mark. I got some ideas. I'll tell you later. Otherwise, I have a video coming out Wednesday. And um, it's on the marriage and divorce stuff. I'm going to answer some final questions on that topic. And then Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, you guys can join me for the live Q&A. If you have questions, I'm not taking them today. I will be taking them Friday for an hour, just answering your questions. So Lord bless you. Thank you so much for joining. And um, you bless me with your excitement about God's word and your desire to learn learn it. And, and that's exciting. Because I think I think people... <laughs> I'm just, this might sound, this might sound arrogant. It doesn't mean to, I think people like us, people who love scripture and just, it just, it excites you to just learn the truths of scripture. I think that we're, we're building something of a community, you know, around this, this channel, but even better. My hope, this isn't in my notes. I just felt like sharing it. My hope is that as you're getting this love for scripture and this sense of the value of, of teaching verse by verse is that you guys will impact your whole church communities. It'll take years, right? Slowly, you'll slowly teach better and minister better and be more focused on the word in a gracious way than maybe some others around you. And then that will over a generation or so, it'll change the flavor of the church to be more biblical. And so hopefully this is changing churches from the inside out. Anyway, that's my secret plot. All right. God bless you.